0: Welcome to the Food Professor Podcast, presented by Cattle, Season 4, Episode 19. I'm Michael LeBlanc.
1: And I'm the Food Professor, Sylvain Charlebois.
0: Our special guest on this episode is Doug Alexander, Vice President of Sustainability and Government Relations, Belmont Food Group. Doug's experience running food processing operations spans 37 years of meat processing and other food processing sectors. Uh, Sylvain, I believe you know Doug well. You you cross paths uh, in many uh, circumstances. I found the the interview uh, really interesting. I mean, he brings such an interesting background and rolls up to his his current role.
1: Yeah, he's he's been around. I mean, uh, and not only that, he's been uh, he's been so involved. Uh, he's he's. I see him as an advocate for the industry, really, uh, and um, and uh, he has advocated. Uh, for the industry uh, on a variety of issues as well. He understands the mm-hmm. business, mm-hmm. the food business, and he's been, as you know, he's, he's mostly been in, in, in livestock and, and meat yeah. products yeah. in general yeah. all his life. Uh, he's worked for Canadian companies, um, foreign companies, and uh, so, but I think he has, he, he has a very good grasp of what's going on and, and the issues that we need to deal with for
0: sure testify, testify, my friend. You just got back. <laughs> you just got back from the town that fun forgot my hometown, Ottawa, and you I spent know. some time in front of the Ag Parliamentary Committee. Nobody so, on the
1: canal, by the way.
0: Uh, man, Nobody on change, the canal. You know, like the, it didn't even open last year, right? Which is just sad, yep. very sad. Hope I I I don't know. What's the word? Is it going to open? It was this minus
1: year? two? I mean, it was cold enough. I thought
0: we got to drive well, a saw, truck on, it, right? Yeah. I saw
1: the Beaver Tails uh, yep. outlet with nobody in front of them. Uh, yeah, it's, it was, you know, it, it was a it, sad it, scene.
0: It's a very it's a very much a side note, but there's you know winners and losers whenever weather gets this weird. You know, try you don't want to be set, a person selling ice melter and uh, the GTA. Uh, these days but in your neck of the woods uh it's good to have a snow shovel handy so you know yep. there you go what took you to ottawa and give us some context bring us there bring us into the room like who who was there with you and why were you called in this particular occasion and then tell us what you uh, what you talked about
1: well actually i was called in december but i i wasn't available i was away and uh so they did call in uh uh, Jim Stanford, as you know, again, Weston testified before the holidays. And, um, I mean, the work of the committee was supposed to end in December. Mm-hmm. Uh, my guess is that they weren't, they weren't done. Uh, they and what is the work
0: he- of the – remind the listeners, what is the work of the committee? What's their – what's the remit? What's the mandate in this particular – So in this particular
1: – so the committee basically is responsible to, uh, to study, uh, to look at specific issues for parliament – uh, essentially. And so, and this time around, so I've, I've testified before this committee oh, at least 10 times over the years, I guess. Different issues,
0: different mandates. Different issues,
1: right? yeah. Global, okay. food secu- global food security. This time it was about food price stabilization. Okay. okay. Because we're talking a lot about that right now. And they were charged with the task by parliament to look into this matter. And so they did invite a lot of witnesses. They've been actually at this for almost a, a little over a year now, really. Yeah. And so uh, and NCOs were some... Time well
0: spent, I would add. Time well spent by our parliamentarians because food is so much and agriculture is so important. Uh, they could be chasing other things. But you know regardless of anything having these discussions is is hugely valuable to i
1: think so and Bruce and people. i i frankly i actually like this committee it's a it's a very balanced committee uh, fina the finance committee is very political i mean you you say one thing and it may get mp's to argue about a variety of issues but in ag in ag it's it's different uh there's uh I'm not saying that everyone's in cahoots, but people tend to respect each other's uh, opinion, really. It's not its not as vocal uh, as, mm-hmm. as FINA, for well, example. Well, as you said, not
0: as political. It feels like they're more interested in the well-being of the citizens. and yeah, genuinely they want to understand.
1: Out- yeah, absolutely. And so they've called in a bunch of people. Yesterday I was testifying with uh, with uh, Keith Curry, the president of the Canadian Federation of Agriculture, who I really – uh, enjoy being with. Uh, in fact, uh, I was there half an hour before. He was there half an hour before. We chatted for half an hour. It was just a great chat, chat and he's very well-respected. And and also, I was with uh, RCC with both uh, Carla Littler and uh, Dan Brisebois, who you know very well. And I yep, know uh, them so both very well. There. So that was the first hour. And so mm-hmm. uh, I was uh, accompanied by Stacey Taylor, one of our members in our lab. Uh, to provide some insight into into forecasting, so because she's behind the uh, Canada's Food Price Report, so that's basically it. So our our, our job as academics is to uh, is to get MPs to understand essentially. While others, I mean, both RCC and CFA, they're lobby groups, so they're there more to yep. convince, right? And yep. so, and of course, uh, in RCC's world, it, it's all about. Uh, you know, justifying or trying to not politicize food inflation because they've been really targeted the last, unf- and I would say unfairly uh, mm-hmm. in regards to greenflation and, and grocers and profiteering and all that stuff. And I've actually defended RCC myself yesterday about that. So, so you and, come and in... just
0: the listeners, just in case they don't know, Retail Council Canada or RCC, their membership is made up of retailers, not brands... Not vendors that's right. or manufacturers, uh, that's though they right. do have them as partners. That is who they are—the voice of, and that's what they're there to represent.
1: That's right, and and Keith uh, Keith's job is to provide a voice to for 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 farmers, essentially uh, across across the country. So so yeah, it was a good session. I thought um, the uh, I I was really uh, doing most of the heavy lifting, to be honest, because I think. I think the committee was really looking after some evidence about a lot of different things: mm-hmm. the carbon tax, profiteering, uh, the code of conduct, uh, the blackout periods, uh, the fees. Uh, I mean, there were a lot of things that we needed to unpack within the hour, and they were just trying to validate certain things. So mm-hmm. the NDP asked
0: me about before, right? They 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 would not be unfamiliar to the. Committee. So they're just trying to get one last kick at the can, so to speak, nope, but of getting they're, they're, evidence. They,
1: they were told a lot of things that weren't necessarily accurate. And so, mm. for example, Jim Stanford, before the holidays, came in with his $6 billion bomb mm. uh, without really telling the committee where that $6 billion came from. And uh, you quickly understood that uh, he basically had an agenda of making grocers look bad. Because mm. the $6 billion. Uh, did include convenience stores and specialty stores. And we did talk about this when it happened, uh, you and I on yep. this podcast. And I thought it was really irresponsible for him to do that. Uh, he could present the $6 billion, but explain where the data is from. It's from StatScan. scan. It's not from verified audited financial statements, which is what we did. We actually looked at financial statements of companies to understand where the profitability uh, is going. And, uh, And Galen Weston, of course, uh, uh, also uh, argued uh, before the holidays that uh, the Code of Conduct would cost Canadians a billion dollars. So he dropped that bomb and uh, he did apologize. I think it was on December 23rd or 24th that uh, he made a mistake. The Code of Conduct has nothing to do with prices, really. The one in Australia, anyways. And so it has more to do with contractual terms and getting people to get along and settle disputes. That's really what this is all about. And so he rectified that. And so I was asked a question, and we talked about it for an hour. It was actually a really interesting thing. But the one thing this – this was my 21st rodeo in Ottawa, by the way. 21st. 21st, yeah. But I actually saw something I've never seen before. Hmm. 10 minutes before the end of the session. Okay. The chair, Cody Blois, who's very competent, he's a liberal MP uh, here in Nova Scotia. He basically summoned RCC to um get on board, I guess, or to push the the code of conduct agenda further as quickly as possible because mm. my 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 feeling when I was talking to the committee, what I, when I was looking around, I felt that a lot of MPs were running out of patience. Hmm. That's, and I've never seen, I've never seen uh, the chair basically stop the session and asking specific questions to one witness or to a group of witnesses directly because typically the chair doesn't ask questions. He never does. But this time he did. For about ten minutes, and of course, he came to me for some validation. But RCC was under was under the gun. I thought, yeah.
0: So, uh, so when you say that they were under the gun, they were under the gun. I guess on behalf of their their members, because a couple of the members uh, or a couple of retailers have said that they, for example, are not supportive of the code. Is this is this was? His yeah, main... that's
1: right. So, I, I think it's. I mean, everyone knows that both Loblaws and Walmart uh, have reservations about the code. And uh, they felt that RCC should play a leadership role in that. And, uh, and so they said, well, your members, two of your really most important members are, are really not supporting this. But most witnesses that we're hearing, they are mm-hmm. saying that the best thing to do moving forward is to implement a mandatory code. And, mm-hmm. I, mean, and, I, and I was asked a question yesterday, can a code work without laws and Walmart? And my answer was no. I don't mm-hmm. think it can. Mm-hmm. and because some mps think well let's do it yeah and mm-hmm. gradually invite everyone else to join and i don't think it's going to work i don't think it would work that way
0: which which transition it from being a voluntary code uh where it started right the i mean the start of the journey in the code was a voluntary code uh that would uh preclude any kind of legislation or government involvement the code would be Separate from a, a legislated code, but that's um, what we're trying to avoid, I guess. Or where where do you think the the, the committee sits today?
1: Um, my my guess, reading the room, I think the committee is is leaning towards a mandatory
0: industry led code. And do they have now? Thinking back to the beginning of this code discussion, provincial versus federal jurisdictions is is, is it's going to be messy, no? To do that,
1: oh, you need the provinces to actually. Buy in absolutely. You can't just say Ottawa do this. You have to really get auto, uh, other provinces on board. So uh, I think there's a, still a long way to go.
0: But For you a need mandatory uh, code. There's a it's a long road ahead if that's going to happen. If if the, that's if the right. But uh, I mean, turn.
1: I I think I think if you are to get some sort of deal, you you need to hear from all grocers. Uh, I mean, both Loblaw's and Walmart represent about forty percent of the market. I mean, if you don't have that forty percent, it's mm-hmm. hard to convince provinces, you know. So mm-hmm. that's why, and both of them are national players, and so yeah. that's that's that concerns me at all. Uh, I, I think, I mean, even if you have the leadership of the of the of of Ottawa uh, coming in, you still need the provinces, but it would certainly help if you hear both Loblaws and Walmart endorsing the project, which they haven't done already.
0: Well then it would be so voluntary. Far. Well then it would be a voluntary code.
1: And I and I basically said don't bother. Don't, don't bother. It it's it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. And it would actually provide a disadvantage to those who are adhering to without a code. Them it without minute.
0: Without that minute you said don't That's bother right, exactly don't so bother it would doing actually anything th- without yeah.
1: I think it would probably make things worse.
0: Okay. No. Yeah. um what else did, now i saw uh, you did a, a quick summary on social media so you're talking about the, the 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 code uh what else did you kind of highlight in a in a brief couple of minutes that uh, were kind of the pin the you know the, the big parts of your testimony
1: yeah no so, profiteering
0: well, i think you said no profiteering we couldn't find any evidence of that right
1: yeah no no profiteering uh so no profiteering but let's look at uh the practicing culture. I mean, the law, law, fifty percent got me thinking. Alister uh, McGregor from the MDP uh, did raise that point. Uh, he called for an investigation on this issue. I don't think it's it's worth it. But I think it really. And 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 this week, actually, the the Bureau will be testifying. I honestly think that they have enough power to do more than what they're doing now. Hmm. The bread, the bread scandal, the bread investigation should end. I mean, after nine years, come on, nine years. <laughs> It's a long time to bake a loaf of bread. (laughs) I know what's going on here, and so there's there's a lot of that going on. So I did say, you know, I think we, I think we, and the and and the blackout period to me, I mean, Eric Lafleche's comment last week was troubling to me, uh, saying, Mm. you know, oh, the the blackout period ends, so expect higher prices. Mm. Like you're saying that on a call, everyone reported on it, everyone's concerned, and actually, I did go back. So what we did this weekend to prepare for this week in Ottawa, we went back 30 years, okay? Okay. We went back five years, 10 years, 15, 20, 25, 30. We tried to figure out when, what month, on what month do prices change more?
0: Up or down? Or just up?
1: Up Well, just up, okay? From up. The, from the highest to the lowest, okay? Okay. The lowest is actually minus, okay? Just just basically we're looking at price volatility here, okay? Okay. Do you know which month came number one? January. And then November, then February, then May. Hmm. January is in the middle of the blackout. And a lot of people say, well, the blackout is great. We're phrasing prices. It helps consumers. We don't see that. So for five mm. years to 30 years, consistently, the one month that comes number one is January. After that, it's, it's November. Mm. The blackout starts in November. We boost prices. Suppliers boost prices. In February, they boost prices again. It's in the data. It's right there. And May, you know what goes on in May, right? Grocery fees. Uh, so blah. so I got I, I had a letter from blah. In my hand, yesterday in Ottawa, showing that on April 28th, fees at Loblaws are going up. DC fees and direct-to-distribution center fees are going up, which will probably get other grocers to do the same. And suppliers will just raise prices to offset higher fees. And at the end of the day, it impacts retail prices. May. So, of course, it's all speculative. I don't know for sure to know what's going on, but I tried to explain why these four months are the top months. But it was really telling when you saw the top three months being really linked to the blackout period. Okay. There you go.
0: Uh, so, what are the next steps for the committee? Uh, you said the competition bureau is going to testify in front of it. Uh, they were, they, they must be. Yeah, looking I think,
1: and after the competition bureau, I think, we, I think they're done. Uh, and I they, think they're going to be writing a report, and that report yeah. will go to parliament, and uh, the minister of innovation will actually uh, consult, and will take action. I think and that's how long. That's what the plan is.
0: How long does this report typically take? It's not a kind of a two-week thing. Like what? Um, when do you think they would get a report written? In a big file like this.
1: So I think I think the clerk will probably want to produce a report before uh, the summer. Uh, so my guess my guess right now, I'd say April, okay. when the house is still sitting. Okay. That would be my guess. All right. Yeah. All right. So it's continued.
0: T B D. No, yes. T B C to be continued. All right. Well, thanks for that. Uh, Sticking with governments here, I I noticed this, um, the government giveth and the government taketh away. The government giveth $3.3 million to lactalis and $89 million in funding for food processors. What's going on here? What's, uh, What's the government up to?
1: well it's it's really about optimizing processing uh, and innovation essentially, and so the government is the government is very supportive of the dairy sector uh, as mm-hmm. you can imagine mm-hmm. but I think it's more it's more about vertical coordination if you will um, okay. let's let's talk about the big elephant in the room we're talking about synchronizing quotas with Processing. There's there's some milk dumping going on. I know that the dairy farmers of Canada don't like to admit it, but there's some milk dumping going on. Mm. And those surpluses, you need to you need a contingency plan. Uh, And as you know, uh, we talked about this a few weeks ago when I interviewed with uh, Canada Royal Milk. There was a there was a co packaging deal for lactalis at Royal Canadian Milk uh, Mm. in Kingston. Mm-hmm. The chinese owned plant, so I think there's uh there 's some of that going on right now. I think you, you have processors trying to figure out different options for uh for uh, unpredictable scenarios if you will and okay. so and uh minister macaulay is is a friendly ear mm-hmm. to the dairy sector he 's a former dairy farmer himself, so everything 's there for them right to actually get to to those to those, uh, to those funds. But my, my, my guess, and I haven't looked, my guess is that all of the, all of the sums were uh, already included in last year's budget. But okay. I may be wrong. So okay. it's not new money specifically.
0: It's an allocation. All right, just made the news at Canadian Grocery like, uh, just caught my eye. Just wanted to ask you about it.
1: Yeah, because uh, I think that the sum, the overall sum, is over $300 million. So there's okay. still a long way to go. Okay. Uh,
0: some sweet news coming out of the West. The sugar strike is over. Unionized yes. workers at Rogers Sugar Vancouver Refinery ratified a new five-year labor agreement. Uh, that strike began all the way back in September 28th. You and I talked about it a couple of times in the pod, uh, that it was creating some shortages in the West. So some good news there for the people.
1: It's good news, of course, because sugar, uh, as much as people think, well, we, don't, we need less sugar in this world, uh, the industry needs sugar. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. And sugar uh, prices are skyrocketing. So this mm-hmm. is certainly good news for processors.
0: Uh speaking of good news, our friends uh or people we know or people you know at Remilk, which is an Israeli-based technology company that has produced a how do we describe it, a, a dairy um how do you a lab grown dairy product like that is yeah. cheese? Is that a fair description? Um, yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. You 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 basically it's it's through uh, precision fermentation. Hmm, so okay. uh so you play with microbes. It's actually quite natural. People will say, "Oh, it's ultra processed. It's not mm-hmm. good. It's different than the real thing." Mm-hmm. Well, you you kind of play you uh, you play with microbes to create proteins. So you play with nature to create proteins at okay. a different level. So instead of milking cows, you're basically creating dairy
0: proteins. You're milking with microbes. Exactly. You're milking proteins. There you go. Uh, I, well, exactly. Is I think they got a. A notice of non objection, you know, in the world of regulatory stuff. Uh, yeah, um, that Glenford knows so well. It means, in basically- other
1: words, they can actually go ahead and start selling that stuff as an ingredient. I don't think you're going to find remilk products uh, mm-hmm. in stores, but you are likely going to see a lot of visits from remilk to CPG companies uh, to sell the technology as an ingredient.
0: Now that for sure non objection letter is that for Canada. I think for Canada, for Canada, health Canada. And do you know where they sit in the US? I don't think they've got in the US yet, which is uh,
1: yes, they so they're approved in US, Singapore, oh, okay. and Great. Israel. So we're number four, yeah. Number
0: four, All but right. this is well, the
1: first company being approved in Canada, so it's actually quite exciting. historical, yeah. I think it's actually exciting, but it begs the question about our you know. Supply management legacy. I mean, what's going to happen there? I mean, mm-hmm. they don't. Mm-hmm. Their farmers don't need to care about demand. I mean, they're it's all about supply management. So mm-hmm. if if demand goes down, then basically you just readjust quotas. But the question is that uh, over time we're losing farms. We're going to lose more farms. So how does that work? And mm-hmm. how do you make that that industry competitive? And this is the one argument I've made for many many years. That what's the plan here? Mm-hmm. Is the plan about just managing a declining sector? Is that what the plan is? Because that seems to be the case.
0: Hmm. All right. Uh, Complicated issue, as dairy always is. Maybe, if we're lucky, we might actually get some folks from Remilk. I'd love to to hear all about it. Yeah, we're working on
1: getting the CEO of Remilk in the next couple of weeks. Uh, So they've they've accepted our invitation. It's just we haven't been able to uh, settle on a date yet.
0: Let's take a break from the news, uh, and we're going to get to our interview Uh, With Doug Alexander, but first, let's hear from our presenting sponsor, Cattle. Ever feel like the world of ratings reviews needed a superhero? Well, enter Cattle, the caped crusader with Canada's largest, most diverse, and daily active consumer panels. That's right, Cattle is not your average podcast sponsor. So why choose Cattle? Because Cattle excels in consumer insights from your consumer, while also blazing trails in the realm of ratings and reviews, pioneering the future landscape of user-generated content. Beyond the valuable syndicated receipt data, they stand as unparalleled collector of reviews at scale, irrespective of category or price point. A testament to their impact, partnerships with giants like Walmart, Canadian Tire, and more. Visit AskCattle.com now for an exclusive The Food Professor podcast listener discount on your first review or research campaign today. That's AskCattle.com.
1: Well, we have the pleasure this week to have Doug Alexander as a guest. Uh, he is a veteran, uh, a legend in the food industry, I would say, uh, someone I've, I've known for many, many years, uh, a good friend, someone I respect a lot uh, and is a leader in the industry. So I'm really glad to have Doug join us uh, this week.
2: Doug, how are you? I'm very well, thank you very much, Sylvan. A lot of people refer to me like the Kevin Bacon of the food industry. I'm really six degrees <laughs> of separation from everyone else. I just can't dance like him.
1: I I I know I know that yeah.
0: <laughs> Which part do you know? The dance part or the other part?
2: Yeah, that part. That the
0: dance part. Well. Yeah. Okay. The, ba-
1: the Bacon is incredible. The dance, <laughs> not so much. Yeah, that's right. I like
0: I, I like what you guys did there, Kevin Bacon. All right, that's
1: right. Exactly. Listen, uh, Doug, I I know you very well uh your our listeners may not know you very well perhaps you can tell us more about you know, your career and how you ended up at uh at uh, at belmont
2: sure um so when i was trying to figure out what i wanted to do in life my mom said to me you know don't work in this industry or that industry work in the food industry because people got to eat and i'm like well, that makes good sense so i studied food science and and uh I joined uh, uh when it was a co-op program which I highly recommend to anybody and I had the privilege of working as a co-op student for Kellogg's in London when it was known as Kellogg's Salada about yeah. 500 years ago and um and so uh, great experience and as soon as I graduated you know 86 The economy was roaring. I had lots of opportunities to pick and choose where I would go. And this company uh, known as Canada Packers, which became Maple Leaf Foods, um, investigated me, interviewed me, and lured me in with the premise that we operate in the meat industry and the food industry on a personal level. You know, look them in the eye, shake their hand, and trust is so important. And that impressed upon me my entire career, uh, how how i operate and so yeah i worked uh, for about 11 years uh for you know what became of canada packers it became maple leaf right. and uh, then moved into the baking industry did and, you leave before
1: uh, it became maple leaf foods
2: oh no i was there after the acquisition yeah. right uh, i stayed okay. until about 98 and uh, yeah it was an exciting time that's for sure when uh, the mccain family took over and they pointed their attention to the UFCW to take control of the business and sort out the national labor standardization. It was quite an interesting time yeah. to be in the meat industry. We were on the news constantly, uh you know, something that we were really un- unaccustomed to. And then that was what the like end
1: time. of the nineteen nineties ish.
2: Yeah, I would say yeah. so if I'm dating yeah. myself. Yep, yeah, in that range. Yeah, it was uh uh, we had uh, a very big strike at the Burlington, where I live, uh, meat plant, and that's when I decided to change industries because the security and everything else that went with labor disruption was just tough. It was high. tough, yeah. Yeah, it was really tough times for the folks that stuck it out. and uh, So I spent some time in baking and then went into uh, private equity uh, after that, uh, the uh Uh, tried uh, half of my career was uh, was was large corporations and then the other half was private equity uh, partnership and some baking sauces condiments spent some time uh, in a company called uh, European meats which was family run in Toronto Mm -hmm. well known for their operations and their uh, sausages and so on and then Moved to um, a couple other companies that passed us. uh, Right. And what was your
1: role, uh, generally speaking, what was your role uh, in these companies? Uh, Was it like in
2: operations mainly? Yeah, mostly operations. I uh, okay. started in quality assurance in the laboratory and then moved my right my way right the way through as a production supervisor in a slaughter operation and eventually becoming a quality assurance manager. And I moved back and forth. I spent areas in logistics and production planning and Direct supervision, quality assurance, some engineering. I built, uh, I think, about seven plants over my careers as far as participating in the design and wow. upgrading. what, what a so background! Lots of, lots what,
0: a back, what a background you bring. That's fantastic.
1: Yeah, the one thing that I I'm very impressed with when it comes to Doug Alexander is is that as a quality assurance person, he's been able to really. You know, capture the strategic essence of a company. Like he actually has a very significant strategic role. He's played a, a very important strategic role in many of the companies he he's worked for. And typically, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Doug, but typically quality assurance people are, are more uh they're very modest and they stay in their lane, so to speak. Uh that, that's not Doug Alexander, as far as I'm concerned. No, that-
2: that's uh, highly regulatory now. Uh, I was there in the beginning of HACCP and HACCP recognition, yep. um, and then it moved on into the Global Food Safety Initiative. I'm, you know, I'm happy to wander back into that world, but it has become so regulatory that you're almost like a lawyer when you work in quality assurance. It's less about the food science and the food chemistry and microbiology and more about interpreting science in regulation and uh yeah. that's interesting but yeah it's a little a little uh, focused.
1: <laughs> and so when did you end up where you are now today and tell tell us more about what you
2: do for a living today. Oh yeah so well my role currently is uh, vice president of sustainability and government relations I look after uh, ESG, and I'm happy to explain and demystify some of that, uh, and government and industry relations. I sit on a number of boards. So I kind of have the outward face of our business group. Our business group is the Belmont Food Group. We're part of Premium Brands Holdings, uh, a publicly traded uh company in Canada and our group is made up of six meat companies and I've spent most of my career in meat so I really I really enjoy giving back but I had the privilege when I joined uh, of running Better Foods in Orillia a couple of plants up there making uh, cowboy steaks and bacon and yeah. then moved to a, a sort of a centralized support role uh, uh helping out with uh you know what? Uh, ESG is, is something that uh, Ron DeSantis has kind of ruined the name of, and I'm happy to, uh, to, to <laughs> well, fix actually, that.
1: You know, before I throw it back to Michael, uh, perhaps I could tell you, I, I could ask you, what, what is
2: ESG for you and for your company? What does it mean? Well, I mean, the literal translation is environmental, uh, social responsibility, and good governance. But it's really, at the end of the day, people in the food industry are good people. Uh, It's been my experience through my 38 years in the business. And just giving yourself credit for the good work that you do, at the end of the day, is 90% of it. Most people in our industry worry about the cost of goods sold. So energy, utilities, and conservation of waste it's just inherent in our business. Some of the leanest people I know are in the food business. I mean, lean by manufacturing lean, not necessarily thin. But um, they uh, they <laughs> they certainly worry about waste, and so conservation of waste also reduces your your carbon footprint, your water waste, your food waste, your packaging waste, and and it's part of our culture. So it's really just giving ourselves credit for being good people and uh, recognition of what we do, which is not popular these days at times.
0: Let, let's talk about that last part. Um, you know, the the evolving nature of, of ESG and compliance, and, and it, it's a great description of the evolution. And as you have worked in multiple brands with multiple, let's say, proteins or whatever, and in different roles, what is uh, how has it changed over the years? Like, is it harder to be Innovative and create new things when the regulations become tighter, or is that just another challenge that you, you know, the folks who specialize in innovation within your different uh, organizations really focus on? So, I I love to talk about innovation and this integration with with standards and and ESG. Talk talk about that a little bit.
2: Sure, there there are a few uh, uh, metrics that you use for ESG. We use the GRI index. Uh, It's a very comprehensive, and I guess talking about regulatory uh, components there is a big component to it in ESG because you mm-hmm. report it publicly so the one end of the spectrum is like the accounting and and reporting component mm-hmm. to ESG and that is arduous because there's a lot of checks and balances to make sure that you're honest and straightforward and there's no There's no uh, uh, misinterpretations in in your reporting. And those are important numbers that are fairly complicated. But at the other end, it is creative and innovative. Mm. Uh, Mm. Finding ways to, as manufacturers, uh, it is very difficult to reduce your carbon footprint. It is very hard to reduce your thermal footprint. Let's say you run a fully cooked uh, food business. We have some fully cooked meat businesses that have a very significant carbon footprint and how do you work Mm. towards net zero and how do you work towards carbon neutrality without buying offsets. So the very common way to do it and Nestle has taken the position that they won't be buying offsets, that they Mm -hmm. will be, it's a bold position that they're going to do their work in an authentic manner, which is the way that we look at it. Mm. We look at first to conserve energy, to conserve water, to conserve uh, waste and food waste look at to try and reduce our overall footprint before we just go and pay someone else to do it, which is at the end of the day is offsets. And it's a bit complicated, but it's a bit innovative because how do you make things by saving energy. I mean, you could turn the motor off, turn yeah. the boilers off, and turn off right. the smoke houses or whatever, but you don't produce anything. So it is yeah. a it is a real challenge to find ways to do that. But that is that's led to some really innovative solutions in carbon capture and energy reduction.
0: So as as you work through your your role, talk about the interface with so you've got governmental and regulation regulatory interfaces. Uh, which is probably kind of part and parcel of it, but uh, how do you think consumers view this lens? I mean, it, I'd be I'd be shocked, including myself mostly, if you know most consumers understood the the comprehensive work and the hard work that goes on. Like, is there a way to turn that into, um, you know, an organization like yours with tremendous expertise? Is, is there a, wor- a way to turn that in consumer facing and become turn that to a sustainable competitive advantage? I mean, you could say, listen. We're better than the imports of from X, Y, and Z because we do the following. Have you gone down that road and talk about that a little bit?
2: Well, each business certainly talks to their own strengths and the good things that they do, whether it be mm-hmm. social responsibility and helping sure. those that are less fortunate and food insecurity. But uh, I think modesty is really important around ESG the consumer can do their homework if they care about it those that are that are focused mm-hmm. on sustainability already know what you're like and if you put on too much if you put too much marketing spin on it mm. you appear to be not authentic and i think yeah, I mean, it's important for it's us it's an interesting
0: to paradox right interesting paradox yeah so
2: we report our numbers publicly mm. they're yeah. available for those that are interested but the consumer is first and foremost interested in price especially mm-hmm. these days and then quality Sustainability is a component of that. So you could put on your package how much your recycled content is. And that leaks right into regulatory because there's new regulations around recycled content in food packaging. And Mm. so you can kind of modestly share that you're taking the best Mm. steps to reduce plastics in the landfill. Something I'm happy to chat about. Right. Do, do, you, um, do you feel,
1: Doug, that there's more skepticism out there, generally speaking, not, towards, not just towards your company, but generally speaking about, uh, about environmental stewardship in industry? And I'm obviously talking about greenwashing. Uh, do you think there's more skepticism out there than, say, just a few years ago?
2: I think a couple of years ago, there was a big pushback on Wendy's and a number of other uh, in the U.S. where claims were made inadvertently Mm. around. And and I don't think it was deliberate. Uh, I, I believe it was just this. It's very new. We all mean well and we want to do the right things. But when you really dive into the complexity of ESG reporting, it's better to say less than say more, because when you start to make claims around targets or numbers, you could parse and, and argue that it is, essentially, um, you're looked at uh, from the lens of a modest, sustainable organization. And if, if you don't have a lot of charges laid against you, or Ah. public errors, and then it happens where a company has something very negative occur. We know of Mm -hmm. some historical events that have really hurt the brands the public trusts you in the food industry the public trusts us to Mm. produce their food they don't check to see if there's a high count of listeria monocytogenes in their in their product that they're about to eat they just trust it and they wolf it down so that part of that trust and stewardship really aligns well with uh, doing the right things doing it quietly and moving forward because that's just the industry that we're in public generally trusts that
1: last night michael actually had one of your one of your products i'm sure you thought uh, about all of these things you just mentioned <laughs> as he was eating a delicious chicken didn't yep. you uh, michael
0: yeah i mean i i, I didn't know the uh, organizational structure so i was doing some research before the conversation with Doug, and i said oh there's yorkshire valley i had that for dinner yep. last night it is my it is my favorite uh, organic chicken product it's a fantastic uh product so so let's build from the the fantastic product part. We've been talking about the ESG part, and I'm kind of interested to dive into, you know, how organizations you've worked with through your history and, and your uh, your partner brands and all those house of brands, how do they innovate and create qual- consistent quality? It, it must have been, did you learn something from the COVID era about how to, to streamline operations or how to get food out in a crisis? Has that turned into lessons learned for the your organization talk about talk about just the the, the the trade craft of making fantastic products
2: well covid was a very unique window of time uh, we we had to toss out innovation, and our big innovation was how to make more. The consumer seemed to want mm. more food, more comfort food to feel better yeah. and so this just meeting the supply chain demand, finding ways. Mm when a major retailer called you and said I know we normally take one truckload a week of this but can I have yeah, 20 right. and uh, that's, you, a, that's an honest conversation that occurred yeah. uh, in 2020 and and how do you figure out how to make that many burgers mm. or packages of bacon that's certainly one component the other component is mm. canada differentiates from let's say you know food valley in holland where they're incredibly innovative, and they have an 80-year mature infrastructure for innovation in Food Valley and Holland, and and in Canada, we're we're not as innovative as we'd like to be. I think uh, we, we we're branded marketing, but because mm-hmm. we have such retail concentration. The retailers drive innovation, and as and they have such a close relationship with the consumer, they can see based on their data and what they're pulling in at their cash registers mm. what the consumer want. So we respond to that quite often with me too. So if they come along and say, "I'd like a great deal of upcycled ingredients put into my meatloaf," and mm. how are you going to do that? Because our our data shows that consumers is interested in food waste reduction and emissions reductions related to upcycling. And some people might go, What is that? I spent some time <laughs> in that space. I'd be one of those. So, so, figuring out some of the yeah, I'm yeah. happy to explain upcycling. But anyway, uh, uh, it's a sustainability initiative. You're um, a fan of upcycling, I- eh? I am. It does really genuinely reduce emissions. We're working on the world's first uh, carbon registry for food waste. It hasn't existed until I lost my patience. And we've been upcycling for about a year and a half at one of our operations.
0: Give us an upcycling 101.
2: Uh, There's about, I don't know, 5,000 kilotons of food waste, whether it's agricultural, retail, Mm -hmm. consumer manufacturing across Canada. Uh, we generate about 9,800 kilotons of emissions from food waste, methane generated as a food rise. And so capturing it before it's wasted, mm. Uh, mm. let's say potato peelings at you know a, a French fry factory and turning those potato peelings into uh, direct ingredient addition instead of maybe just biodigesters, which you know generates mm. energy, but slowly mm. generates some gases turning that into so we we capture white potato powder from uh certified and it is certified upcycled so there's a traceability component that at the farm it would be plowed under and that it's number 6 potatoes you know it's the least palatable ugliest food and there's a company called outcast foods who have a very low carbon footprint to convert mm-hmm. it and preserve it as a powder and we add those and replace first-run uh, potatoes with hmm. the least palatable because usually it's ground up into a powder and it's added as a binding agent and <laughs> a flavor additive, then it's natural. And so without it rotting and generating a ton of methane in the ground, Your we're ground preventing that. And it's a new process called insetting. And hmm. so we're insetting, not offsetting food waste and uh, and preventing significant, uh, In in our case, we... Probably use a a million pounds of raw white potato into a formulation, and that wow. prevents holistically over two million pounds of uh, of emissions and cumulatively, if you think about the easiest thing to do is if you prevent food waste and that improves the yield, it reduces the food waste cost it, it should lower food costs, and it also really authentically reduces emissions. The big battle is. Who owns those emissions? I don't care who owns those Mm. emissions. I think it's a good practice to do. So we're working with an organization, Carbon One, to generate a carbon registry for it. And then we'll be able to give Mm. ourselves credit for that, those emissions reductions. And we're within, I'm told, a week of that final report on that pilot project. So that's That's pretty innovative.
1: Mm. So you're you're more of a carrot
2: kind of person than a stick. (laughs) I absolutely I sense. 100% if you could axe the tax, uh, it, it would reduce the cost of food. I mean, I'm not going to get into any apple eating uh, diatribes, but the carbon tax is certainly uh, a stick and yeah. it doesn't work. Uh, it hasn't really uh, affected what it has done is added cost of food. And, and so, yeah, carrot, uh, encourage yeah. people. To, to give themselves credit for the good things that they do yeah. far more. Popular.
1: You're, you're, you're a leader in the industry. I know you and I, we've spoken, uh, uh in link about, uh, plastics, the issue of plastics P2 and, and everything that's going on in Ottawa. Okay. Give us, uh, your thoughts about what's going on right now. What are your concerns mainly about, uh, about, uh, changes that are looming that could impact your business and the industry overall?
2: I think the biggest fear is the swift movement that, uh, you know, Environment Canada and Climate Change Canada, ECCC, has done is the, the single use plastics. And I know that it was overturned in the courts but it's still under review. And this is all being driven by the United Nations, INC. Now it's four. It's going to be in Ottawa in April, uh, where there is a significant interest in reducing plastics. So it's not going to go away. But how swiftly they moved in the single-use plastics was concerning. This time around with the P2, and it's a notice. It's not policy. I was coached on that last week by (laughs) CCCC. They are actually... Because they, they were, actually, you were in the room with them. You had you yes, had a workshop works. with EWC. Yes. How did that go? It Went extremely well. Uh, they yeah. heard honest input from processors and they were retailers. there to listen. Yeah, they were, and they did, and they've been actually doing an excellent job of consultation, which. You know, really? which is the opposite of what the way I think the way that the uh, single-use plastics ban came along. So that was the concern: was how swiftly they would act. Do you they think the federal court's the
1: decision actually kind of sh- shook them a little bit, or did did you um, see it?
2: They were already doing the consultations last summer. So uh, uh, to give them credit, uh, they were listening and taking in some of our ideas of how to reduce emissions. Plastics, uh, look, it's a serious problem. It's a third of our landfill is food packaging waste. And so, and plastics take a long time to, to break down. How do we solve that is not a single solution. And what they were looking at was circularity. That is what the United Nations is looking at, is tracking plastics life cycle. That is expensive, not something the consumer wants. It is difficult to do. And 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 may may not be accurate. Can you imagine a manufacturer tracking its package of uh, resealable uh, sliced meats all the way to the landfill? And and in essence, our landfills are a big challenge. Municipal recyclers. So we had them in the room as well. They they educated us a little bit that there's only three landfills in Canada that that uh, are in use right now, and that. Uh, Nine percent of plastics, only nine percent of plastics that make it to the recycling centers are actually recycled. The bulk of it get into the landfill. So we we have about a 10 to 12 year lifespan of plastics in a landfill. So the, the carrot rather than the stick. Is the better approach is you know what? As a society, we need to reduce plastics in our food packaging. It's mm-hmm. a third of the waste. No one knew that. You put it in your blue bin. You think that it's going to go into yeah. some chair, uh, some Muskoka chair sure. somewhere where they can sit. CD case or out. something. <laughs> but, but I slipped that in there. You're welcome, Justin. But uh, so um, <laughs> and and or your bacon or your sausage. So that's uh, right. <laughs> yeah so uh the you know the but it doesn't happen that way. it ends up in the landfill plow down, and then it's got to break down very slowly over time, generating emissions so uh there's about fourteen hundred and one emissions per year, kilotons sorry fourteen hundred and one kilotons of emissions per year from plastic waste, reducing that is a good thing, and as people are aware, so the consultation by ECCC is going well because they're listening. They were listening before the, the courts made their decision. They sort of circled mm-hmm. the wagons, but they still continued to listen. They participated, heard what we had to say. And I'll tell you, the one thing that I learned is doing these in-person events, and you and I still ended the first one in November yep. with uh, Food and Beverage Ontario, uh, where, you know, you could hear the experts in the room talking about their solutions but when you hear the actual operators both the retailers a large mm. national yep. retailer there and landfill operators and all the processors in the room i asked them to put their hand up each time I said, how many people, show of hands, understand what the P2 is or what the blue box program or what a PRO is and all the components of recycling? And not too many. In fact, maybe one or two people in the room mm. really knew. And so that honesty was was the, the first beginnings of solving the problem is more awareness. And then once people become aware and that includes our government regulating overlords. Those folks, once they understand that, and they're nice people, uh, that, <laughs> they're nice that overlords. it is not easy, it is a challenge, mm-hmm. then, um, then they can't just broad brush a solution because it'll fail. If they really want a solution, they really need to work with us and have... Uh, uh, iterative solution. So we use energy from waste. Uh, The Folks at uh, the Jade facility in Brampton burn. They don't burn. They told me to say the word incinerate, but burn is way funnier. It's like the word belong, (laughs) but um, it's a funny word. But anyway, you can't burn your garbage, but you can incinerate it. And their emissions are 180th, last I looked, of the provincial standards. It's incredibly clean and it reduces the load On the landfill. So incineration is what we did at Belmont Meat Products. It's a way to do 100% diversion from the landfill. And that's the first goal. So if we look at, do we have to protect our landfills? Let's divert from the landfill first. And then how do we start to parse it down? Biodegradable plastics, not necessarily as popular as people would like to believe, even though we've done tons of work in that area, because there are still some emissions. But iteratively... It's a good first step to reduce plastics in the landfill. Let's make some more room for other garbage and reduce our food packaging waste. And so the solutions aren't going to be a single broad brush solution. It's going to be 20 or 30 simple iterative and cumulative solutions like energy from waste, like biodegradable plastics, like recyclable plastics. But there were suggestions in the room. One fellow uh, from an engineering firm said, you know, don't we have a good system with beer bottles? And I'm like, yeah, Bob and Doug McKenzie had it right. You know, they love those those little bottles. We just naturally, you know, (laughs) pick up the case of beer, take it back to the beer store. And yet societally, we don't do that for other plastics. We probably should have a lens like they do in Europe for water bottles to be able to be recycled. It's very clean plastic. How do we recycle those and turn them into thermal forming plastics? But the put conversation, depi- you put a deposit
0: on it. I mean, that's why I go to the beer store is because uh, I, right? I, you know, I want to get my I want to get my deposit back. Um, there's your carrot. There's my carrot. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, listen, listen, Doug, this is <laughs> exactly. a fantastic, fantastic discussion. Um really uh very enlightening actually and it's perfect we last week we had uh, you know, like Glenford Jameson on talking about regulation so this is a nice uh, a nice continuance uh, for yeah. a practitioner so um listen where do, where do people get in touch and how do they get in touch and how do they learn more about all the good work uh, that you're doing
2: well um, I'm happy to share my uh, my LinkedIn profile as Doug Alexander uh, you know vice president of sustainability and government relations at at uh, Belmont Food Group. Uh, you certainly look me up there. A lot of people do. Uh, my, my email address is uh, dalexander at belmontmeats.com. I'm happy to take uh, you know emails and, and, and answer people. I do work very collaboratively, and I really believe in giving back. So anyone I can help with solutions, I'm very happy to do so.
1: That's great. Uh, Doug, uh, again, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I mean, you're, you're, you're so involved. I mean, you're not only a, 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 an important player within your company, but you uh, dedicate a lot of time uh, across the industry to, to make a difference and in influence policy in, in a good way. I mean, you're, you're very active. So thank you for your service, and uh, thank you for your time today.
2: Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure and fun chatting with you, Sylvain, and, and great to chat with you as, as well, Michael.
0: Couple of last things that I found were interesting. This article in the Wall Street Journal: the hottest beer in America does not have alcohol. Athletic Brewing uh, has really? become the king, the king of non-alcoholic beers. And and uh, George Solaus, the CEO of the LCBO, actually was on uh, the news last week talking about this trend. What do you what do you make of this? Like I see these interesting trends, you know, in in the in the liquor business, ready to drinks RTDs, as they known in the category, yep. started to supplement beer. Uh, we see pressure on beer from a bunch of different places. Uh, Wines yep. used to be under pressure from from cocktails. Now you've got, uh, you know, a, a fast growing uh, beverage that, uh, you know, it's just a lot about marketing and non-alcoholic. Do you think this is a genuine, um, you know, youth trend? And do you think this has potential to uh, to expand and become a I mean, it's a hundred and fifteen billion dollar market, right? In the U.S., like beers. Yeah, no. U.S. uh, Absolutely. I wish we had
1: numbers in Canada. We just don't. Uh,
0: It's about nine billion, uh, isn't it? Isn't beer like about ten, like roughly ten percent? Because I remember seeing somewhere in maybe maybe the listeners. uh, It would be
1: nice. It would be nice if we can actually see some data, uh, Mm. but that would be a rough guess. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean. The Super Bowl is on Sunday, and uh, will more people drink non-alcoholic beer? Probably, I would Mm -hmm. say. Uh, And uh, I haven't checked, but perhaps we'll see the first ad ad of of non-alcoholic beverages, uh, or perhaps we'll see the introduction of some non-alcoholic beverages. I mean, it is getting more popular. People are concerned about their health. They're they're concerned about... uh, you know, some of the things that we're hearing about cancer and things like that. And, mm-hmm. uh, and the price, of course, the price of, of alcohol beverages are, uh, is pretty is much, it's getting higher. It's getting more expensive. So yeah, I've got, absolutely. I've actually got I, and, some
0: numbers here from the U S and, and, you know, I, I'm not sure it wouldn't be very similar. Like the 10 to one rule is probably not a bad place to start again. If there's any listeners out there that have some data, send it our way, but I'm definitely. looking at some numbers for, uh, Twenty-two, the non-alcoholic beer sector increased twenty percent. Twenty-three, it increased thirty-five. Uh, Those are good numbers. Um, oh, you know, percentages over a relatively small base, but big percentage numbers. And and beer itself has been, you know, flat to down, basically, uh, you know, a couple single-digit growth. So not much yep. growth in a particularly mature product. So, uh, you know, the non-alcoholic beers making a mark. What do you, you know, every time I've had non-alcoholic beer, I haven't had this beverage. I got to try it. I found it. I don't know. I found it sometimes too salty, or I've never loved it. I've never found one that I really enjoyed. Even what about you? Have you ever have you ever tried and enjoyed it?
1: What I find is that products are improving. I mean, okay, uh, five seven years ago, I mean, it was hard to find a a good non alcoholic uh, option, but things have gotten much better now. Uh, you you have more choice. Quality is actually improving as well. So uh, yeah, that, I think that there's there's going to well I'm going to see extreme we're expecting a lot of growth from that category over the next little while. So, uh, yeah, I, I think, yeah, I think it speaks to how people are, you know, concerned about, uh, about their health. And of course they, they, people have to drive around and, uh, if you're uh, under the influence, you can't. And so, yeah, yep. it, it, it provides you with some, uh, some more options as a, as a, as a host or as a guest, if you go to parties and, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's interesting. And, and kids, and uh the, the also the other issue of course is cannabis. I mean, a lot. Of, ah, there there's go. a lot of uh, uh interest like for the younger uh yeah. generations there's there's I mean they're they're growing up in an environment in a market where uh the legalization of cannabis is normalized. Uh is normal. Uh, you and I were much older and so mm. for us it's still sort of taboo in the back of yeah. our minds, I guess. It's
0: fu- it's funny you say that cuz I still get a bit of a thrill walking into a a cannabis store ordering some hash like it's yeah. just it's just funny to me like i'm like oh hey openly I some, yeah, without I hiding, yeah you know like it's <laughs> exactly thing. it's interesting because you can go back to the beginning of our conversations years ago even before the pod we talked about this will cannabis uh put some kind of dent in other beverages like beer and i think my supposition was it was going to hit hard alcohol harder but you'd still you know at a party or drinking with friends you still want to have something in your hand and a nice beverage but maybe you have a a couple of gummies or a little bit of uh, uh the devil's lettuce before the super bowl and then just enjoy a non-alcoholic beer and um you know you do you or you do you or whatever. Yeah, no exactly, yeah. Uh all yeah. right, well listen, uh, great episode. Uh, let's uh let's dedicate this episode to Celine Dion who made a stage appearance Celine at the Grammys. A fantastic Canadian uh on the stage coming back uh from her uh, health issues it was great to see her on the stage of course a uh a fantastic quebecer as well so uh i wanted to dedicate this to uh celine dion for getting back on the stage and then
1: and- for the record taylor yeah. swift did not snub celine oh my goodness she did not Can at we put all that to rest please oh my goodness taylor, taylor swift's the sweetest thing uh, and, and by yeah. the way on sunday yeah, on yeah. sunday i mean the nfl they do everything right <laughs> they do everything right my my mm-hmm. my three daughters who yeah. couldn't care less about football will be listening to the super bowl on sunday because yeah. of taylor swift yeah isn't that beautiful is it that's marketing uh,
0: i tell you she is uh, she's something to behold and in fact uh, last last i was in vancouver uh, last week and uh, i was checking out ticket prices to go see ms swift of course they're long gone they're on, uh, they're on the secondary market but uh, swifty they start at 1200 and go to 35000 So yes. tickets still available for those of you who um, want to make such decisions. Anyway, let's, uh, let's leave it there. I just want to ask you. So who's yeah, going to
1: yeah. win the Super Bowl this weekend?
0: I don't even know who's playing. Like, I don't follow the sport at all. Okay. Do the
1: Eagles. Yeah. Okay. Or the Titans. Who's going to win? Uh,
0: the Cowboys. Uh, the titans. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Do you? I I, don't, I have no idea. Really, I have no idea. I just watch it. Just, I don't even just watch for
1: it. the record, Taylor Swift's boyfriend plays for the next Super Bowl champions, the Kansas City Chiefs. Oh, there you just go. So there, you know.
0: Yeah, there you go. There's a, you're laying it down right there. Very there good. you go. Huh? <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's uh, like I said, let's leave it there. on Michael Blanc consumer, a growth consultant, a podcaster, and fan of Cattle, who is our presenting sponsor. And you are?
1: Yes. And I'm the food professor Sylvain Charlebois.
0: All right, everybody. Enjoy the football game that I won't be watching and safe travels and talk to you next week. Bye-bye.